Good morning. Hey, I want to welcome you to Summit Church. Today we are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. There's something beautiful about these verses. Um, the beauty is in their simplicity. I'll just come clean, guys. Uh, today, the truth that we will unpack from those few verses in Ephesians 1 is probably not earth-shattering truth. Today, unlike last week, you may not go home questioning something that you've believed your entire life. Here's what will happen today. You will be put face to face with the full work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because where we're at today, if you put it into context, we're in the middle portion of a rant by Paul that is one run-on sentence in the Greek, where he is describing the work of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit within the process of salvation. So last week we talked about God's work in planning out everything according to His pleasure and His heart's desire and His purpose. He did this. It was all in the plan. It was all done before the foundation of the world. He's got it all in control. He's totally sovereign. Next week we'll talk about how the Holy Spirit helps apply this plan and specifically what we're talking about today, which is how Jesus provides for salvation. If you wanted to sum up the whole thing, all these, verse, these verses that we'll look at today, it's very simply this. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that mankind may be redeemed and forgiven their sins. Like, if there was enough impact in that statement to get a third of you to just be like, wow, I need to sit in the weight of that truth. If there was enough impact, we could bring Nick back up right now and just respond. to to Just that truth, that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for the redemption of mankind and for the forgiveness of sin. Wow. That's beautiful. That's weighty. But it's also very simple. So today... We sit in the beautiful weight of simplicity. And maybe for some of you, it's just the simple truth that you need to change and transform your entire life. So at least that's my prayer. Let's pray together. God, reveal truth from your word that will cause in us a response to your grace that will leave us transformed for eternity by your power, for your glory. May we leave here looking more like you. We thank you for the work of your son Jesus on the cross and what that means for our lives. And God, may we never be the same because of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. We'll read the first little bit of 8. There's a period in the middle of verse 8 and I think a whole new thought starts But the rest of verse 8, they did just kind of throw these numbers in. They're not perfectly placed. So we'll read 7 and a little bit of 8, then we'll pick up the rest of 8 and go through 10 here in just a moment. But I think that's a second thought. Thought number 1, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, says this, In Him, now that is Jesus, so don't be confused. So in Christ, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I wish this sentence were structured differently because it looks like 
His blood was for the redemption. It caused the forgiveness of sins. In reality, redemption and forgiveness of sins were both afforded to us because of His blood. So just know that that phrase in His blood applies to both the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of mankind. Now, both of these things happened in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Beautiful, beautiful wording here. We'll come back to that. Let's figure out what redemption and forgiveness are. Let's figure out how His blood causes those to be. And then we'll just look at the beauty of that last little bit of verse 7 and verse 8. Now, redemption. If you're a dictionary type person, very simple definition of redemption is to loose, to set free, to deliver through the payment of a price. That last little bit is the most important part of the definition. You can loose things, you can free things, you can deliver things by other means, but if you're doing so by the payment of a price, that is redemption, at least at its definition level. Now, like many words in Scripture, there is a much bigger concept that the author is trying to explain or describe when they're saying we have redemption through His blood. There's a bigger concept, and we need to understand that bigger concept. Sometimes it's helpful, like today, to trace the evolution of a word. So we trace it back to its roots in the Old Testament, and at its most basic point, redemption is this, to walk into a marketplace, to put down money, to buy an item. So you purchase something off the shelf and you take it home because the exchange for the purpose was your money. That is redemption in its most simple form. Now, it did evolve into a term called kinsman redeemer. We get part of our idea of redemption through this. Ruth, her husband died. She was going to lose her land. So a man stepped in and became her kinsman redeemer. He put up the price necessary, the payment necessary, to keep that land in her family. He became her kinsman redeemer, but he redeemed for her the land by the price that he paid. So there's more evolution there. And then finally we see this word in the law, in Moses' law. It's a very unique use of it. But in the law, if you own an animal, let's say a donkey, your donkey, because of your own neglect, and I'm struggling to think of how you could be so neglectful for this to occur, but your donkey, because of your own neglect, gets loose and kills somebody. Ninja kicks him in the throat, and they die. Okay? And you walk up on the scene, and your donkey's sitting there like, yeah, I'm bad, and you're going, oh, that's my donkey. Okay, in Moses' law, it states that if your neglect can be proven, you left the gate open, You tried to put him on a leash made out of yarn and he broke free and kicked the dude in the throat. If it it was your fault that that donkey killed that man, the punishment for that neglect was your own life. The surviving family members of the throat kick guy could kill you as punishment or payment for your negligence. Now there was a little bit of a caveat within the law. If you, as that animal's owner, could come up with an agreed-upon price, a purchase price basically for the life of the one that your animal killed, then you could spare your own life 
for the payment of that price. You could redeem your own life, even though they had every right to kill you, you could buy back your life from the mad family members for 400 head of cattle and a really nice looking goat. Like, I don't know what the price was, but whatever they came up with, you could redeem your life for that. So that's the evolution of the word. We see that there is this changing where it's not just buying something, but it's now the saving of life. It was the saving of property, then it became the saving of life. So there's a purchase price to save life. That's where the Old Testament leaves it. The New Testament picks up right there and starts to wrap in this idea of setting one free from slavery, from bondage, from captivity. There's a ransom price paid for a captive to be set free. That's where the New Testament then takes the word. And that's what we have here in verse 7. We are set free. We're delivered from sin because of the payment of a price. There's several other New Testament passages that talk about this. Talking about us being bought out of sin, never to return again. Matthew 20, verse 28 is just one of them. It says, this is the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. So his death was a payment for many. Titus 2.14 takes it a step further. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us, there's the word, to pay for us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So his life was paid. Christ died to deliver us, to free us from wickedness, to therefore purify us. So we we don't even see there to life. We just have to a redeemed life, to a holy way of life. His death paid for that to happen, that we might be a people that are eager to do his will. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 is the last verse I'll read. It says, you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed, that you were purchased from the empty way of life that was handed down to you from your ancestors. From your own sinful nature is what he's saying. As as a human, you were born with this sinful nature and Jesus paid for that sinful nature to be delivered, not with silver or gold, but with his very own life. Or more specifically, verse 19 says, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You were bought with a very expensive price out of slavery to sin, never to return to it again. And this is because, look with me back at verse 7 and verse 8, because of God's extravagant generosity and love, which He manifests in the form of His grace. Unmerited favor given to us Do you see that word there in verse 8? Lavished on us. It means to generously shower upon. I'm not getting the image of a stingy God. Paul's not using terms like the riches of His grace and lavishing His grace upon... He's not using terms of a God who sits up there and is just like, ha, no one's going to get my grace. There's this idea of a showering of it. Don't don't check out. Picture that. Picture God, fully sovereign, just pouring out buckets of grace upon you. 
and upon all of us. Lavishing us, generously showering us with what? Condemnation? No, grace. Unmerited favor. Just being poured out. What a beautiful picture. That grace affords us redemption and the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin or forgiveness just in general means to wipe the slate clean. That's a definition of forgiveness, to wipe the slate clean. God no longer remembers a believer's past sins. We get that from Isaiah 43 along with many other places. But Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions. So God is speaking. God is saying, I am the one who blots out your transgressions. I just rub them away. Blot them out. And I love the rest of this verse. I do it for my own sake. I'm God. I know everything. I don't want to sit around and dwell on how sinful you are. So in graciousness, but also just because I don't want to do it, I'll blot them out. And then he goes on to say, and I will remember your sins no more. He's not just erasing them. He's erasing them, then he's forgetting them. He's intentionally doing that. Forgiveness is a beautiful concept that so many of you struggle to get for this one reason, because you know how sinful you are. You sit here and you go, forgiveness? Sure, for most things. For what I've done, not a chance. There's no way that God would forgive me for this. There's no way that God will forget that. Absolutely not. Church, to doubt the truth of forgiveness is to question the worth of the sacrifice. To doubt the truth of forgiveness is to question the worth of the sacrifice. And that's why Paul makes it clear, the sacrifice was the blood of God's own Son. There is no more worthy a sacrifice. A hundred million tons of gold, not enough. The blood of God's one and only Son, sufficient. The most worthy sacrifice was given so that you might have forgiveness of sins. And I say that to encourage you. To encourage those who believe there's no way that God would forget what I have done. Because of the shed blood of Jesus, He already has. Some of you need to hear that truth. Redemption and forgiveness were paid with Jesus' very own blood. In the Old Testament, the children of God understood this more clearly because blood was used for the atonement of sins. It began at the Passover when God's children, the Israelites, were told to leave Egypt, to leave slavery to the Egyptians. They did so after the last of the plagues, which was the killing of all the firstborn children in Egypt. And the way that the Israelites, God's children, could avoid their firstborn being taken by the angel of death was this. They were to sacrifice a lamb without blemish or defect. They were to take the blood of that lamb 
And they were to spread it over the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death came through, the angel would pass by or pass over the homes that were covered by the blood of the lamb. That was the beginning. For the next couple thousand years, the children of God were reminded seasonally of their sin and the payment for that sin because of the sacrificial system that God set up. Maybe you're like me. You love people. But if two grown men are fighting and one guy gets hit, you're like, oh man, I wish he hadn't got hit. But if that same grown man kicks a puppy dog, you will shoot him in the leg. (laughs) I don't own a gun, but I will find someone who has a gun because you just kicked a dog. And that is wrong. Like, you punch a guy in the face, that's, that's bad. But I'm not going to get too worked up over it. Punch a dog. Watch my wrath. I, I don't know why I'm wired this way, but like animals, I just, I, my heart just breaks for animals. And it should break for people the same way, and hopefully, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> but man, don't mess with dogs. Or, yeah, just don't. Um, You are now a 13-year-old Jewish child. And seasonally, you raise lamb chop over here from birth. Your cute little cuddly lammy, your pet, that you take your scraps to every day. And then about three times a year, your parents say it's time to go to the temple for worship. And you got to put lammy on a leash whom you love and care for, and you take Lammy into the temple for worship with you, and the priest walks up and says, this is an acceptable sacrifice, and they take Lammy, and they cut Lammy's throat in front of you, and they take Lammy's blood, and they say, that's for your sins, so that you can have favor with Yahweh God. And then you go birth another Lammy, and do the whole thing over again. Uh, There is no way in the Old Testament that you would not be acutely aware of the payment and the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is death. And you know this because a couple times a year, you had to take your family pet and kill it for your own sin. Now, we're not so intimately aware with the price that was paid for our sin because Jesus became the total cleansing for sin for us. We no longer have to sacrifice animals. His blood was shed to atone for sins once and for all. And so I don't want to bring back the sacrificial system one bit. But I do think we need to be reminded regularly of the price that was paid for our sin. It was John the Baptist who declared probably at his first meeting with Jesus, this in John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John declared, I I see the Lamb of God coming and and he is the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. And his death and his shed blood will be for the sins of the world. Sin has a price and a penalty and that penalty was paid with the very blood of Jesus. Your redemption and your forgiveness were bought with a very expensive price, and that is the blood 
of Jesus. When we as believers commit our lives to Christ, His death becomes our death. The penalty for sin is paid, and we are redeemed and forgiven. Our sins are no more. They are gone. Now some of you are sitting here going, if I've been redeemed from slavery to sin, my sin's been wiped out, completely forgiven, that that happened through the blood of Jesus, I think I understand that, I get it. Here's the problem. Why am I still sinning? If I've been freed from sin and I've been forgiven of sin, why am I still sinning? And the simple and, at least for me, unsatisfactory answer to that is because we still live in a fallen and sinful world. But I want you to look at the rest of verse 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians 1. And this speaks to the beautiful plan of God and to our current condition in a fallen and sinful world. It says, the second half of verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, that is God's wisdom and understanding, you may want to think there, with God's being completely sovereign, He made known to us the mystery of His will. Now, whenever you see the word mystery in Scripture, it means something that was hidden for a period of time, but now has been made known to a few. So if the mystery is God's will, His will was unknown for a period of time, but now through Jesus, His will has been made known to a few. Those who are in Christ, we get a behind-the-scenes look at what God's doing in redemptive history. So His will has been made known to us. And it's according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. Here's what His will is. And here's what will happen because of Christ when the times reach their fulfillment. He will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, all of them under Christ. Scripture says it this way, in the end, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The end, the time that reaches its fulfillment, being the return of Jesus in power as a conquering king, no longer as a submissive servant. He will come back and He will wreak some havoc here on this earth. And one of the things that He will finish is He will put sin to death once and for all. He will create a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more sin, there is no more sorrow, there is no more suffering, there is no more pain, there is no more tears, there is total joy. That is coming when the time reaches its fulfillment. Basically, when God looks down and says, go. Now, the beauty of Ephesians 1, 7-10 is it lines out the three functions of Jesus' death on the cross, His shedding of His blood. It did three things to sin. It accomplished three purposes that have its effect on sin. So I'll give you this outline to help sum up Ephesians 1, 7-10. Think of it this way. This verse, these verses, tell us that Jesus saves us from sin. Jesus saves us from sin. But it happens in three ways. First, He saves us from sin's penalty. Sin has a penalty. Romans teaches us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. If you are a sinner, you deserve death. That's the price. But He paid that. He took the penalty on Himself. 
He also saved us from sin's power. Sin's power is the slavery that we have to sin and the guilt that we have from sin. He saved us from that. And you go, but hold up. To quote the words of Paul, I still do what I do not want to do. You're telling me I'm not a slave to sin, but my life speaks differently. What's the problem? Am I free or am I not? Maybe these words from Piper would help you. You are decisively and irrevocably free. In Christ, you are decisively freed from slavery to sin. His blood shed on the cross took care of that. The chains of bondage to sin have been broken. You are decisively and irrevocably free. Because of Christ, you can never go back to slavery in the sin. It just is not His will. It's not His purpose. You will not go back because of Him. He will not put you back in it. You're decisively and irrevocably free, but you are not yet perfectly and finally free. Verses 8, 9, and 10 talk about the day where we will be perfectly and finally free from sin. Your freedom from slavery to sin is not a call to sinlessness. You are free. But we still live in a fallen world. And you will still struggle with sin. But the question is, are you captive to sin? Are you unable to have victory over sin, even little ones? Because you are free. You are currently free. Not perfectly yet, but you are free. And so if you are in the bonds of sin... I believe that Scripture is telling us that's because you are not choosing to embrace the fullness of redemption. Because of your doubt, because of your hurt, because of your selfishness, because of your apathy, because of your laziness, because of your ignorance. You are stuck in sin. And that's horrible, church, because you're already free. Think of it like this. When Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, that statement declared that all slaves in America were free. When that proclamation was made, There were over a million slaves in America that the next day were still slaves. That statement declares them free. But it would take decades for all the slaves in America to truly be free. And it's the same with Christ. You are free. If you are living in bondage, then it is not meant to be that way. He's declared you free. There is coming a day where you will all be free. But we need to see the reality of redemption. And we need to live as those who have been freed from sin's power. And then one day we rejoice because there will be no more sin. 
and we won't have to wrestle anymore with our own sinfulness. As Nick comes back up here, you received the elements for communion as you walked in the door. You probably could have guessed once you read the passage that this would be a fitting response. Please don't open these right now. Because it's my guess that many of you need to do some work first. And here's what I mean. There's no greater depiction of this passage than the bread and the cup. The bread representing Jesus' body that He sacrificed for us to pay sin's penalty, its debt. The blood representing the price that He paid to purchase us, to ransom us from slavery to sin and to forgive us from our sins. It's by His very blood that our sins are wiped clean. Whiter than snow, Revelation says. I think though, in response to today, you would be very wise to take the words of 1 Corinthians 11 seriously where Paul urges us to not take the bread and the cup without first examining our hearts. If you're sitting here today and you don't genuinely believe and feel the joy that comes from knowing that your sins have been forgiven, (coughs) that they are wiped clean, then I think you need to do something about that. If you're sitting here today and you don't, Know the beauty of the freedom that comes from Christ that has brought you out of slavery to sin. I think you need to do something about that. Here in just a moment, we're going to stand and respond, and there's going to be pastors and prayer team people up here for one purpose, for you to come forward and to confess and repent sin. Because the Bible tells us that When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and He will forgive us our sins. They'll be forgiven. Wiped away. And and you can stand there confident that your sins are remembered no more. (coughs) And then there's going to be people standing up here that would love to just hear you say, I am crippled by my own sinfulness. But I know Christ. My faith is in Him. And I don't want to live in those chains anymore. So if that's you, I want you to come up here and declare that as if you're declaring it before God and allow us to pray that freedom over you. Freedom from the bonds of sin. Your pride is the only thing that's going to stop you today from coming face to face with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray that there's not enough pride of anyone in this room to not humbly walk forward and say, I confess this sin because I want it gone because the price that was paid is too much for me to live in it anymore. I want this bondage done with because the price that was paid was too much for me to walk in sin any longer. I think we all should come. It doesn't require that. I think we all would have something to do up here, some work to do. And then once your heart's right, then you take this as a celebration of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. As a remembrance of His sacrifice. We don't have to take Lammy anymore. This is our remembrance. This is what we do to remember the debt that was paid. This is your time to say thank you, Jesus, and to worship Him.
but don't take this until your heart is ready. So God, in the name of Jesus, I pray you prepare our hearts to take your communion, to partake in this sacrament, to remember your body and your blood. God, may we respond to you and your Holy Spirit in this moment. May there be freedom in this place to worship you in your lavish grace that has been poured out upon us. God, may we do so for your honor and for your glory. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to him.